Colonial virus is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. I am my brother's keeper. And when you say the name Jacob Blake, make sure you say father, make sure you say cousin, Make sure you say son, make sure you say uncle, but most importantly, make sure you say human. Human life. Let it marinate in your mouth, in your minds. A human life. Just like every single one of y'all and everywhere around the world, we're human. And his life matters. So many people have reached out to me telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time, longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Mm. Emmett Till is my family. Mm. Philando, Mike Brown, mm. Sandra. This has been happening to my family. And I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to. Mm. This is nothing new. I'm not sad, I'm not sorry, I'm angry, mm. and I'm tired. Mm. I haven't cried one time. I stopped crying years ago. Mm. I am numb. Mm. I have been watching police murder people that look like me for years. Mm. I'm not sad, I don't want your pity, I want change. That was Latitra Whitman sister of Jacob Blake, speaking after this young, unarmed black man was shot seven times in the back by police and paralyzed. Uhuru, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matamela Odom. Our guest today is sports journalist Jason Jones. This week, the National Basketball Association, the Women's National Basketball Association, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and the National Hockey League were forced to cancel playoff and other games when athletes refused to play in protest of the actions of the Kenosha, Wisconsin police, shooting an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake, seven times in the back. The political fallout from the police violence against the African community hit the world of tennis when Naomi Osaka pulled out of the Western Southern Open. Today, I'm excited to have with me on the People's War radio show, Jason Jones. Jason Jones was raised in Long Beach, California, where he attended Long Beach Polytechnic High School and was a varsity letter winner in football. Dubbed the home of scholars and champions, Long Beach Poly has produced the most NFL players in history, as well as numerous other athletes, including Billie Jean King. Following high school, Jason attended the University of California, Berkeley. For 16 years, Jason worked for the Sacramento Bee before joining the ranks of The Athletic, a new internet-based sports journal. Jason has had regular beats covering the Raiders and the Sacramento Kings. Welcome, Jason. This has been an incredible week in the world of sports. Let's just recap what happened. It started off with the Milwaukee Bucks. On August 26th, the top team in the Eastern Conference 
was scheduled to play Orlando in Game 5 of the first round of the playoff series. The Bucks took a vote in the locker room and decided not to play. The Orlando Magic were already on the court when they heard the Bucks had decided they joined the boycott and left the court. Later that night, the Lakers and the Clippers voted to boycott the rest of the playoffs. The Thunder, the Rockets, and Trailblazers also decided to boycott their games. In Major League Baseball, the Milwaukee Brewers boycotted their game against the Cincinnati Reds. The Mariners and the Padres also called off their game, and other Major League Baseball teams followed the Brewers' lead. WNBA players opted to not play their scheduled game. All of but one game of the MLS game scheduled for that Wednesday night was postponed after players announced their intention to boycott. After the one game that did occur, an Orlando City win over Nashville, Orlando City's Nani said that his team was unaware of the scope of the players' initiative to boycott and wanted to respect the fans who had already shown up at the stadium. In tennis, Naomi Osaka announced that she wouldn't play in the WTA Western and Southern Open semifinals on Thursday. The tournament suspended all play for one day. Here's some of what LeBron had to say. If you're sitting here telling me that there was no way to subdue that gentleman um, or, or detain him or to just before the firing of guns, um, then you, you, you're sitting here and you're lying to not only me, you're lying to every African American, every black person in the community because we see it over and over and over. There was multiple, if you watch the video, there was multiple moments where if they wanted to, they could have they could have tackled him. They could have grabbed him. You know, they that they could have done that. And why why does it always have to get to a point where we see the guns firing? I know people get tired of hearing me say it, but we are scared as black people in America. Black men, black women, black kids, we are, we are terrified. Jason, you and I are serious Lakers fans since our childhood. I like to remind people that I actually have the name of two famous Lakers, Michael Thompson and Lamar Odom. So last week was pretty wild for me. When I heard the Lakers and the Clippers led the walkout on the boycott meeting, I had two emotions. My first emotion was like, wait, this was going to be our year. But then I was like, whoa, the two top contenders just voted to cancel the playoffs. That's dope. What was your immediate response when you heard about it? Uh, Yeah, my reaction was if those two teams don't want to play, cancel. you got to cancel the playoffs because no champion would be considered legitimate if the Lakers and Clippers aren't in the playoffs. And having heard what Doc Rivers said the kind of the night before, kind of like a plea to America that America has loved. Black people have loved America for centuries and America has refused to love us back. Knowing how LeBron feels about some of these things, kind of the whole scope of it. It was, it was like if there was going to be two teams who would be angry, it'd be those two teams. 
So those two teams jumping up and making that statement to me was going to definitely send shockwaves through the league and force something for some type of action, whether, you know, may, it may not be action on a grand scale. It wasn't going to, nothing was going to change that moment, but it was going to get people's attention because those are the two marquee teams in, you know, the second biggest market in the country. Yeah. Um, without a doubt in some of these issues, the National Basketball Association and, of course, the Women's National Basketball Association, the WNBA, has seemed a lot more progressive than other sports. The National Basketball Association painted Black Lives Matter on the side of the court. While it has received some backlash and also some support, you have personally criticized these gestures by the NBA. What's the source of your criticism? I just wanted to make sure that whatever the league was doing, I I wanted to make sure it felt like it was authentic. I didn't want to see the movement become, you know, a catchphrase, uh, something for commercials with no action behind it. And to me, the, I was concerned because to me, the biggest terms of the whole, you know, not just the court, you know, players putting phrases on their jerseys, though, the thing I liked the most was what Jimmy Butler wanted to do, which he wasn't allowed to do, was Jimmy Butler didn't want to play with a name on his jersey because Jimmy's uh, perspective was that you take the name off his jersey, he's, a, he's another black man in America, and what's happening to black men across the country and black women can happen to him too. He just happens to be Jimmy Butler. I, I, to me, that was the most authentic and pure gesture <laughs> of all the players, and they just they didn't allow him to do that. But even with all that said, you know, in the NBA is a league over 80% black. You know, WNBA is predominantly black as well. I don't have the numbers in front of me with the WNBA, but you're talking about two black leagues. And I, I, I do appreciate the sentiment. I just wanted to make sure, at least from my point of view, or I, my hope was that it wouldn't become something that would be catchy, kind of like with the NFL when they started dropping, you know, kind of these PSAs after they didn't allow Colin Kaepernick back in the league. You know, after, they, after he gets blackballed and all of a sudden they care. So I, I just, I don't think the league, I, me knowing the NBA as well as I do, I didn't think that was going to be the case. But you still got to be critical and look at these things from, a, you know, with a critical eye. You just can't say, okay, well, yay, they let us put Black Lives Matter on the court all as well. Thanks for that, Jason, because as you might know, uh, in the Hoover movement, we don't say Black Lives Matter. We say Black Power Matters. Mm. What are some things that you think the NBA could do besides simply paint Black Lives Matter on the side of a court? Hey, I've seen some different things. I know me covering the Sacramento Kings. Uh, and two years ago, you probably all know the story of Stephon Clark, who was shot and killed in his grandmother's backyard when the Sacramento police said that they thought his cell phone was a gun. And I was at the game when a couple of days later, protesters prevented fans from coming into the game to, to kind of protest, you know, just another killing of an unarmed black man by the police, where we all know that there was going to be no punishment. You know, we know they were going to be, you know, put on paid, leaving an investigation, but no one expected anything to happen. And in that case, those officers weren't charged. So when that was in March of 2018, but when they protested and didn't allow people into the game, that got the attention of the country. And it turned a kind of blase late season Kings versus the Hawks 
no one cares about it game <laughs> into a game everyone had to pay attention to. And then what it, what it actually did there was it sparked the Kings into action. And, you know, you see a lot of these sports teams, they'll, you know, hold a camp. They'll give kids free T-shirts, you know, let them take a picture with a player. But the, to me, they don't do things that are actually in the community to spark change. And the Kings actually began to take an active role in the community. You know, and, and not just by giving away basketballs, by starting STEM programs, you know, doing things that I thought were actively engaging the, the, the black community in Sacramento. They actually began to work with the with Black Lives Matter in Sacramento. And I don't have it for sure, but I'm pretty sure they were the first NBA team to partner with community organizations like that in order to try to work on finding some some sustainable solutions. They had town hall when it wasn't just a media town hall. It was, let's get the community in here and find out what's going on. And at the same time, the Milwaukee Bucks had, that's another thing people forget about the Bucks with their, with their protest. Sterling Brown plays for the Bucks. And a couple of years ago, Sterling Brown was harassed by some police in Milwaukee. I think he was leaving Walgreens. Her handcuff, you know, just, no, a complete abuse of power, and it didn't stop until they realized he was a Milwaukee Buck. And then, even with that, one of the police officers went on social media and and mocked the way that he quote met Sterling Brown. And though Sterling is suing the police for that, so you've got two organizations who have seen up close, you no know, police brutality, you know, you know abuse of power, and they've both kind of worked together to try to spark some change through some of the work they do in the community. And I've been to their events and I've pointed out on other things I've talked about just in terms of the media coverage. It doesn't get the coverage I think it deserves. I've noticed that generally it's just a couple of the black reporters who seem to care. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised by that, but I do think there, there are a couple of teams that who are showing examples of ways of, not just writing a check and going away, but going into the community and trying to provide things that are sustainable. Like I said, you know, you're talking about math and science, things that help beyond just selling black children on the dream of, you know, one day you can play in the NBA. So I think that every team can do things like that. And NBA players have a lot of power. They have guaranteed contracts, unlike football players. So once they sign a contract, they get their money. So they they can speak out more maybe than their counterparts in football. Now, Jason, thanks for mentioning Sterling Brown. Sterling Brown isn't the only NBA player to experience police brutality. Correct. Can you tell us some other examples of police brutality experienced by African athletes and even African executives in some of these sports teams in recent years? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to look at a player, just look at the uh, case of Thabo Cephalosha. I believe he was playing for the Atlanta Hawks at the time. Uh, the team goes to New York, and as tradition, traditionally, players will arrive in a town. They'll go out that night. You know, they, they they're on a you know a charter flight. They if they they have a game in say Detroit, they can be in New York in a couple of hours. You know, so they they might just get there in time to still go out. You know, go to a club or whatever. You know, Cephalosha goes out. Somehow the police, I don't know what, what their excuse was, but somehow they end up accosting uh, Cephalosha and they break his leg. <laughs> and he's, you know, he, he, he sued and won, but, 
you know, just the, the notion that they, you know, they, I mean, they broke this man's leg and you get, you have people who would still kind of question whether or not the police are abusing their power. You know, that's a clear example of that. And the fact that he won, that he, you know, he won his case against them, you know, and being and if anyone who's watched the NYPD in 2020 and some of their press conferences can't be surprised that would happen in New York. And then you have the case of Masai Ujiri, the uh, vice president, you know, basically top basketball executive for the Toronto Raptors. Last season, they win the championship in Oakland. And he's trying to go into the court. And I, I know I've been to hundreds of games. And you, if you've been around the game and you're, you know, you know who's who or who's there is working. You know, Masai has on a suit. Not that that should even matter, but he has a suit on. He's pulling out his credential. You know, the sheriff there who's working security shoves him, just outright shoves him. To, you know, and there's people telling the sheriff, hey, that's the president of the Raptors. And he just shoves him, you know, rough, you know, accost him. And then the, the same sheriff lies about what happened. And it wasn't until the body cam footage was shown recently that a lot of people understood that Masai Ujiri, who, if you're around the league, you won't find anyone to say anything bad about him. And, and again, to me, that that's not the point, you know. Even if somebody had said anything bad about Masai, the fact that you have a an officer who's there to work security for the game, there, there was no crime being committed, but he felt licensed and he could just put his hands on him like that. To me, it's unacceptable. And the type of things that players talk about when they say they still feel threatened in this country and just in general, just by the you know, the presence of, you know, aggressive, overzealous police officers. It does seem that those experiences and the broader experiences of African people in the U.S. have spurred some progressive action in the world of sports. Off the screen, I've heard that there are far more progressive conferences and other forms of conventions taking place amongst black basketball players. Can you tell me about those conferences? Yeah, I've you know talked to some people about that and, and what you what the players are really trying to do is figure out the best way to leverage their power and influence to make change. And this is a complete almost a complete flip of what we saw in the 90s, you know, when we were growing up where it was about my endorsements, my shoe deal, my endorsements, my you know, for a good long while with with, with pro athletes and they're really trying to trying to educate themselves in a lot of cases. A lot of them would tell you that they don't have all the answers. They don't know necessarily what the right move to make it's not like in the 60s where some of these athletes were in college with a lot of the people who were who were in the movement so they kind of came up with the movement a lot of these guys coming to the league now so young they're kind of learning as they they're learning as they go and so a lot of them are looking for guidance they're looking for you know ways they can figure out how to leverage what they have and once once they did learn I think with the with their stoppage is that because they, I believe that Doc Rivers said their power is in their talent. People want to see them play, and people have a fit when they can't see them play. So what can we do with what what can they do with that? With the you no know, basically the service they provide to bring attention to issues to you know, to support, whether it be, you know, I know Andre Iguodala's big on group economics, you know, how can we invest more money into the community? You know, how can we educate? They're just, a lot of them are trying to figure out the best way to do it. You know, Kyrie Irving's really big on that. 
you know, he was probably one of the more vocal ones about not even playing, you know, like don't play. Let's continue to work on these things. And it's funny to shout out the WNBA. Several of their players didn't play to continue the work. And the WNBA has even been, been ahead of the NBA in, in that regard. Remember when, uh, with Philando Castile, it was it wasn't the uh, you know the Minnesota Timberwolves who kind of who were busted out with the first pro- it was the Minnesota Lynx their WNBA team and that night where they wore the shirts you know about you know ending racism after that shooting the Minnesota police officers who were working security walked off the court and just think about that they walked off the court because people said stop killing unarmed black people. So, you know, and, the, and at that point when they were protesting, they were risking fines. And I think the league had to repeal their fines because of the backlash. So, yeah, the players are learning and figuring out ways they can do more than just, like I, said, like I always say, just cut a check. However, as you've also noted, these conferences, conventions and these other sorts of actions don't really get that much publication by the NBA nor by the press. Why is that? I think one issue is just the diversity of the press or lack of it. Uh, I know when I've written stories about these issues and things that players wanted to do or trying to do, I've been told, I'd been told before, you know, people don't want to read this. You know, the numbers aren't good on this. And we live in a real, in our business, a real clickbaity world where everything is numbers driven. Like, you know, when I, when I, when I came up trying to be in this business, I always saw part of my job as a, is to record history. You know, because as I learned about things that athletes did in the past, a lot of times you're looking at old news articles. And so I thought it was my duty to record how the players reacted to the protest and guys getting involved. And in Sacramento, I was fortunate. I've had some pretty solid guys in terms of their knowledge and and their involvement. Guys like Garrett Temple, uh, you know, his, you know, if people don't know his backstory, read it up. But his father was the first black basketball player at LSU. And so he has, you know, so he's he's been his his life has kind of been framed by some of the struggles that come that came with desegregating a, a, a sport in the SEC. You know, just imagine, you know, imagine what he was going through. He they were, you know, he had a situation where the trainer refused to tape his ankles and he's on the team. <laughs> so I had guys like that. And I just think a lot of, you know, I'm comfortable talking about these issues. A lot of uh, journalists aren't comfortable. I had one, I was on a, on a panel and one of the writers was saying how, you know, it's an uncomfortable conversation. You know, how do I broach it? How do I ask? I don't know what to say. And I had to remind them I'm uncomfortable in their world all the time, but I have to do it. <laughs> so you need to make yourself comfortable, you know, and, Listen to what these people are, you know, the athletes, people are saying about these issues and stop making it about, well, how are my numbers going to look? You know, show a genuine interest and care into what's going on with black people in this country, African people around the world. And I mean, the reality is a lot of journalists don't care. <laughs> so it's going to be hard to get some of those stories out there. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Because you talked about a guide and. I know for a fact that former athletes like Harry Edwards have tried to be that guy, have tried to bridge the space between the Black Power Movement and athletes today. So what role do you think people like 
Harry Edwards or authors like Bill Roden have played on the consciousness of athletes of this generation? I think the more they've learned about them, they've really been a, a kind of a big support. I know I I know Harry Edwards. I know he was one of my professors at Cal, and he he was really worked closely with Colin Kaepernick about how to kind of express or handle the, the, the attention he was getting. And I think those uh, people like that are very important just because they have, you know, not just knowledge, they have experience. And a lot of these guys, when they're looking for the guidance, they're looking for, how do I handle this? How do I handle that? What's the best way? And to me, that's a that's an important thing that a lot of them understand that they don't have all the answers. And I think also with people like Harry, Harry Edwards, what makes him important is that he doesn't try to dictate what they should do. You know, even with the players uh, playing and not playing, he said, if you want to play, that's great. If you don't want to play, that's great. Now, what are we, you know, let's talk about what do you want to accomplish now? Now that we've made, you've made your statement, what do you want to accomplish? So I think those people are important in, in, especially in the sense that don't talk down to the athletes. And I think a lot of times, especially nowadays, because maybe guys don't go to college for as long, there's a real big uh, perception or, a belief that these guys aren't intelligent and you see it with the, you know, the way the fake news on Fox attacks LeBron. He's always stupid. No matter what he does. Oh, yo, he's, he's, he's stupid. You know, and the fact that they're so comfortable talking about our athletes that way, calling them dumb, telling them to shut up things. They would never, t- you know, they would never tell Peyton Manning to shut up. They would never tell <laughs> Drew Brees just to shut up, but they talk to our athletes like they're children. And, People like Dr. Edwards or, you know, Bill Roden, those guys are treating them like men. And to me, that's a a big part of the disconnect between the media and the athletes and just sometimes the community and the athletes. They treat black athletes like children sometimes, just in the way they're spoken about, the way they're they're viewed and talked to. So I think you need some of these elders there to help, help maybe help them know figure out different avenues and be there as support and i think you do have those people supporting them thanks for that because harry edwards bill roden and others who've written about sports really have noted that sports plays a peculiar role in our society in uniting simultaneously the physical with the mental for that reason sports had always been the domain of white men but as more and more black men and black people began to move into the arena of sports. We began to hear people talk about uh, sports the way in which you talked about it. As um, I know that Harry Edwards talks about how when they talk about black athletes, it'll be about their talent. Um, uh, But instead, uh, when they talk about uh, white athletes of the same position, same caliber, it'll be about their intelligence yeah. And things like that. So, the co- so the coach yeah. On the field. <laughs> the, he's always the coach on the field versus just the superior athlete who gets gets by on his, you know, amazing instincts and ability. And you also see a transfer in, in the coaches. You know, Doc Rivers is a great motivator. Greg Popovich is a great strategist. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is sports journalist Jason Jones. Now, Jason, we've touched on this just a little bit already, 
But what has been the historical relationship between black people and professional sports? Oh, it's been a it's a tricky one because when, like, as you noted earlier, when sports were looked at as the uh, beacon of not just athletic superiority, but mental superiority, uh, black people weren't welcome. You know, the, you know, the baseball was America's pastime, but we had the Negro League because we weren't welcome. But as you look at the history of what happened with baseball, for example, after the wars, you know, you had, you know, you know I took the class with Dr. Edwards, we talked about it. You had literally baseball players out there who had with war injuries and you needed talent. And so you had to go to the black players. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, uh, black players were used to essentially to prop up their leagues. And then once you saw that, Hey, black people can play the same sport and excel. It was it became a strictly for you know, a profit move, and it also stripped down the black institutions. You know, you look at college sports. How once, you know, the big schools started recruiting black football players, they noticed it. What you know, it wasn't necessarily a campaign for racial justice. It was a campaign to win games, and you realized you were losing to maybe schools like USC on the West coast because those schools were recruiting black players. And if you were at Alabama or somewhere down South and you weren't doing that, you were missing out because some of those guys were going to Grambling and Southern and, you know, HBCUs, they weren't going to LSU and Alabama and, or you no, know, to a you no know, Texas, those, those schools down there. So it's always been a complicated relationship and also because, you know, you generally didn't have blacks in positions of power, whether it be coaching or, you know, front office or ownership in sports like football. Blacks for the longest weren't allowed to play the quote unquote smart positions with quarterback, middle linebacker on the offensive line, center. You know, they, it, they were, there was still that that stereotype that blacks were getting by just on athletic ability, no intelligence. But it's always been about the profit. And from from my point of view, it's always been about the profit. You know, once they saw that black athletes could make them money, and it worked. And like I'm, I'm a big Dodger fan, and you know, but I'm also under no impression that everything with Jackie Robinson was was 100 about the goodness of you know of their hearts. It was also about winning and trying and, and a business decision. You know, because people would tell you too, Jackie Robinson. He endured a lot because because of from being the first, and he may not have even been the best player, but they saw with Jackie a guy who had gone to UCLA, a guy who maybe could handle some of the things differently. And there's people, you know, we read from his family or, or people back there, they all believe that he died so young from the stress of having to live that life of being the first black player. So it's always been about money and, you know, trying to build things up. That's exactly what I was going to say. Before he's even out of his 40s, you see he has this full white head of hair. I forget what age he was. I think he was in his 50s or so uh, when, he, when he died. So people paint this as this, you know, big time success. But people also forget the fact that integrating baseball killed Jackie Robinson. Exactly. So it, in, the, in the movement... We talk about the struggle of African people as a struggle of colonialism, not racism. 
And what we mean by that is colonialism is the domination of one group of people by a foreign power and entity. Racism is the superstructural ideas inside people's heads. Mm -hmm. What you laid out there really uh, underscores a colonial relationship through which professional sports has had with the black community within the U.S. overall. So thanks for that. Thanks for that. You played football for the Long Beach Poly Jackrabbits, unfortunately. Yep. I remember playing against you. <laughs> no one no one talked more than you, even though you were down like 40 points. <laughs> right. I was, like, I was like, he will not shut up. I'm like, does he see the score? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. We actually played against each other. Yeah. I was all more, I was all more league, so we're just gonna say that. But okay. I, we, 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 we. <laughs> had to remind me I wasn't okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so we played against each other, Jason. For African working class youth like we were, professional sports were promoted as a way out. But that's not always true. What are the chances people can make it to the pros? It, and if they do make it to the pros. Do most of these players end up rich? Okay, I could. First part is the chances of making it to the pros. I mean, I've you have to break it down. It's just like we were, we're also kind of skewed being from Long Beach because you know, it, you know, it pop, you know, we we would see five, six, eight guys get football scholarships a year. I think I might have had 10, 12 guys on my team, so it kind of skews you when the reality is most places are lucky that one guy on the entire team gets a scholarship. So if you're just looking at that number, if you got 80 guys on the team, maybe one, two end up playing college football. And then from that number, you know, you get to college sports, you have, you know, 80, 90 guys on the team. Generally, you know, a good team might say a good say in Alabama can get 10 guys from a given team into the league. And even then the average career is only about two to three years. So you're not talking about, you know, unless you're a first round, second high pick, you're looking at guys who aren't fairly gaining generational wealth from those two years of playing, you know, pro sports. And so you, 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 you're putting these guys back into the, you know, the real world at 24, 25. Some of them have banged up bodies at that point. And now they've got to try to navigate this world without having that structure of the sport they played. Now, in the case of football and basketball, is even harder. You only got 12, no, 15 slots on an NBA team. So it's not like you have all this, you know, it, it, just the, yeah, the reality is most people will never see a college, you know, feel much less an NF, you know, NBA, NFL. It's, it's almost impossible to count on that happening. Like I said, we're, we're kind of just, anomalies that we know people I think you know you played with Jason Bell right I played with you know some guys who made it to the league so we're we're anomalies most people don't have that experience so it's yeah it, we're told that from the time we're kids you know you can make it and not you don't want to kill a kid's dream but the reality is you're probably not going to make it so what are you going to do with yourself right what I would say what they could do is what we've done commit ourselves to the struggle mm-hmm all of the professional leagues maintain a parasitic relationship 
with the African working class and poor people, as we've said. But unlike the National Football League and Major League Baseball, the National Basketball Association seems a whole lot blacker. There are more black coaches, black managers, and black players. About four out of the five players on the court at any given time are black. But the front office still seems very white. What does this impact have on the relationship between players and management? I'm thinking specifically about the stuff that happened at uh, the Los Angeles Clippers franchise a few years ago. Uh, oh, yeah. Good old Donald Sterling. Yeah. Yeah. They, what it, you know, there's definitely can be a, a, a big division from, you know, the ownership management point of view and the players. Uh, but Donald Sterling kind of in the, a lot of the represented that parasitic racist colonial he represented all of that you know these were his black players they weren't they weren't people they were his players he could talk about them how he wanted he could treat them how he, he could do whatever he want because in his mind he owned them because he paid their you know he paid their salary and that's another thing i always have a issue with people say the owners give these guys money they, they give the players money. they gave them a contract no everybody on that team earned their money and I think that's part of the shift we need to have as a culture when it comes to our, to athletes. They're not give they're not being given money. They're earning money. And if they're making if LeBron's making thirty five whatever million dollars, how much do you think the Bus family is making? <laughs> they're not going to pay him all that money so they can barely make it. So that's that's part of the, the you know, this kind of the the structural issue. And what you've had too is, and I've known from talking to a lot of former players who are who are coaches who would like to break into the front office. In the NBA, you've seen a large shift to the kind of analytics, data-driven based evaluation process and build up of front offices. And what, what black players and coaches would tell you is that it's kind of created a way of keeping them out of those positions now. Because where it used to be that someone who had played in the league 10, 15 years his input was valuable and respected and mattered. You now have situations where those guys can't break in because you've uh, essentially these people have created their own class in the NBA, in the front office of we do things like this. We use, we use these numbers. We do these things. And because you don't have that MIT background, you can't get in now. So it's just another way of continuing to kind of keep the, the, uh, the you know, the majority black league in, in my view in its place so to speak you know they don't let them in, you can't get in there because now you're not part of this club whereas before being a player in the league and maybe haven't been a coach allowed you to move up more and there are organizations where that's not always the case I look at as much as it pains me to say the legger guy the clippers <laughs> you know post Donald Sterling have become, you know, they went from an organization where Donald Sterling held a Black History Night in March for his team. And his giveaway was to allow Black kids to come to the game for free, as if, how do you honor Black people? Let them watch basketball. Yeah, that's because of what Black people care about. So they've made a big shift in terms of their front office. To, you know, I know a lot of people up there that who are being given the opportunity in to further further themselves but it's still there's still a lot of work to do in that area yeah especially clippers tickets right um <laughs> did you go to nukem when i went to yeah nukem? yeah yeah we were there yeah. yeah yeah we were at nukem and and remember 
uh, how often they would give us Clippers tickets. And I was a terrible student. I got in so much trouble at Newcomb. They, <laughs> they hated me at Newcomb. They were like, you didn't get suspended three days this week. Here are free Clippers tickets, right? So it's like... like is this punishment? I'm like, why yeah. are you giving me these? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I was suspended at Newcomb a couple of times. Remember, uh, they sent me to Stars. Yes, 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 yes. Good old we're, Stars. We're the one shoe all day, just training us for for incarceration. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but until brothers realized that all you had to do was wear the shoes you don't care to Stars, and you could run away. Exactly. So, and I saw somebody run away when I was there. I'm like, man, I should have did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, so recently I read an article. The article was titled, The Gentrification of College Hoops. The overall thesis of the article was that basketball had been a working class sport, but now youth athletics and college sports are being flooded with middle-class children from families who believe it is cheaper to invest in youth sports and get their children a scholarship than paying for the skyrocketing college tuition fees. Mm -hmm. The article noted that only 25% of black college athletes now are first-generation students. We have seen the NBA in recent years dominated by African middle-class athletes and legacies, such as Clay Thompson, son of Michael Thompson, and Steph Curry, son of Dale Curry. And very possibly this trend began with Kobe Bryant. How has this impacted African working class and poor athletes? I think what it's done is it's it's a it's a tricky thing because I think a lot of people want to believe that. It, it, to me, it's part of the the notion of making sure that you believe the athlete is dumb, is that you want to believe all athletes come from this never been to college, no, poor, this poor family background. They should just be grateful to be there because they, this isn't all they've, they've never had this before. But that's, that's a story that a lot of the people don't want to tell because it doesn't fit. The, it, 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 it ruins their narrative of how black athletes are. But what I think what it's also done is it's created a guy like Steph or clay, a class of maybe class is a term, but it's created a group of players who maybe are more emboldened to do to maybe say more and do more because they don't, they, they didn't grow up believing they were less than in some cases, they, they didn't have maybe the same messaging or maybe the messaging came across differently, but a guy like clay clay has been outspoken for years. You know, he doesn't say a lot, maybe like media wise, but me knowing people who know him and been around, it's created a thing where some of these guys feel like, hey, I'm, you know, you can't tell me that you can't, you can't threaten Steph Curry, you know, coming up about, well, this is the only chance, you know, he's good, you know, and and he's, and he, I think he, you see him also leveraging that, knowing his reputation and the family's reputation that hey i can i can say and do some things because of who i am and to me i'm fine with that because for centuries we've seen well i've always said people want to talk about affirmative action and when that affirmative action is i got into yale or i got into harvard because my daddy went there and no one wants so, so i'm perfectly fine with these same you know athletes getting some of those same opportunities 
because of what the work their parents may or may have not done. I don't know if I'm exactly answering the question, but what it is is that it's it's to me it's cre- it's it, it messes up the narrative just because hey now you can't just say everyone here has you know has no 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 education. To me that that's always been used against black athletes that you don't have education. Then clearly these people these athletes are coming from places of education. And so it, it forces them to almost challenge them in a different way. Yeah, I, I hear you. Because on one end, it does seem for people like Steph or Clay to give them some support to say what they want to say. But on the other end, it does seem to be a direct response to the 1980s, the 1990s that produced prominent athletes who came from the African working class like Allen Iverson in basketball, mm-hmm. many athletes in football, also Ron Artest and others, where the, the colonial power structures want brothers with the flair that black people have produced, but to be straightforward, they don't want them to be too black or some <laughs> of the issues and stuff like that. And I also think that it's changed the composition of the game as well. But this is where I think LeBron is an anomaly. What, what do you think about that? I agree. Yeah, he definitely is an anomaly. Just the, uh, you know, people know his story, you know, you know, single parent home, you know, growing up poor and kind of see how he's, he's not only, you know, become one of the best basketball players ever, He's turned that into ways to impact the community beyond just basketball. Because I always joke about, I even said it here. Yeah, it's easy to go back and, you know, have a camp for a day, take some pictures, sign some autographs, and leave and leave these kids. And all they got is a cool t shirt from your camp. (laughs) And they're still hungry. I mean, you look at some of the things LeBron's done with his school, you know, provide, not just providing education, food, housing, you know. He's he's taken the extra steps to to be a leader in that in that thing, in that cause, and I think what it's also you know it's not just LeBron. Jalen Rose is another guy who's done that. You know, got there are guys out there doing the work to use their to use their name, their platforms to continue to shut shed lights light on issues to continue to remind people just just because they have money that doesn't mean everything's okay and i think we need more of that and we need and we need people like lebron to continue to be vocal because every time even if people know every time lebron says something about supporting uh black people particularly poor black people working class people it drives these these racists these 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 uh, conservative it drives them insane because they really to this day want to believe that Hey, you've got money. Shut up. We don't want to hear about it. But I love the fact that LeBron continues to bring it up. He and, and he and he won't be quiet about it. Now, um, that leads me to my last question. And talk as much as you want on this. What can or should athletes do going forward to build a unified and prosperous African community in the U.S. and internationally? Hmm, that's a that's a good one. Uh, I think you were kind of seeing the blueprint a little bit with the NBA in terms of how 
they're, they're you know they're communicating they're trying to work together to, to come up with some some goals and ideas that can you know that, that can be sustainable but i also think it's it also takes not just you know maybe some uh i want to say role players to me role players are the, in a lot of ways that can be a demeaning term you know the to me, everyone does have a role, whether your role is to score 30 points or just to read, whatever the case may be. But what it, what it does is uh, they have to continue to, those with the bigger voices have to amplify their voices. And even if you, you know, you may, be, may not be a high profile player, you can continue to do the work, continue to use whatever you can. People forget with the Milwaukee Bucks. George Hill, who I know George from he played in Sacramento. George isn't an all-star. George isn't going to the Hall of Fame. But I know some of the stories that George has experienced growing up as you know, a black man from Indiana. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know the history of Indiana and the KKK. You know, so there's no no knowing his history, talking to him about some of the things he's experienced. And then now that he's in a position to express himself about what's going on. He did that, and I know it may it may have ruffled some feathers with the players because maybe they didn't know what was going on. But they have to continue to work together, I think, and be unified. They have to understand the power they do have. I think with with the pandemic and twenty twenty is also has shown us a lot that people do not like losing their entertainment at all. They and a lot of people still see black athletes purely as entertainment, and they can they have the power to say. You can be entertained by my talent, but you're also going to hear this. And if you don't like it, you don't have to watch. And I think the NBA has seen that you're not going to lose money with that, which is always the big issue, I think, with all the sports leagues. Will we lose money? That was the excuse for Kaepernick. We're going to lose money if we continue to let him do what he does. And then Nike's made a killing off of this (laughs) financially just because of selling the Kaepernick merchandise. So I think as they continue to grow and understand the power they have, and it makes me look back at the '60s, you know, where Bill, you know, this Bill Russell, guys like that, would, you know, had led led protest. You know, the Celtics boycotted a preseason game when all their team, all, when their black teammates weren't allowed to eat at a restaurant. So, I think they've they've seen the power they have, and it's just about figuring out how to best use that power, how to best use your platform, and how to connect, not just with the NBA, but the NBA, WNBA, Major League Baseball, hockey, all those sports can can work together on some level, I think, to bring forth a greater movement, a greater change, if they can, I mean, we, we're living in a time where communication is so much different than it was back, you know, for our ancestors and predecessors. I don't know how guys like Kareem, those guys were communicating. <laughs> were communicating, you know, back then. But, but we we have a we have a lot of unique opportunities, and I think it's a, it's imperative on the athletes. And, and I also throw this out there: these same athletes got to work with journalists like myself. You got to you know, you got to let you know you let allow all of us to help amplify the story. I know you people, you know, athletes they have their social media platforms, but the more avenues they use to amplify their message, I think the better. You know, so I think all of that has to work together to continue to take advantage of the power the athletes have and to work toward building some change that can, you know, be be worth talking about, not just now, but for generations down the road.
What about uh, economic development projects? Are there any economic development projects you think athletes should contribute to or are contributing to? I know a lot. Some of them, a lot of them are. You know, I just know from talking to some of the, you know, some of the guys I know, they're, they're, whether it be investments and so that's another, you know, I know Colin Kaepernick's big with that, you know, so I mean, there's, there's a, there are guys doing that work. A lot of it doesn't get publicized. Sometimes they don't want it out there. Other times people in the media just don't care. It's not, you know, it's not sexy. It's not the thing that people want, that people want to read about, but I think people do want to read about those things. They want to know about that. And, you know, you got guys, you know, like, you know, Andre Iguodala, who, you know, he plays for Miami now, but he was in Golden State. He took a, he took a, uh, real keen interest in what was going on in Silicon Valley in terms of tech and you no know, venture capital. He took a very, you know, even Kevin Durant as well. They, they've taken a big interest in things like that and how to take those things and bring those back to the community. Because a lot of the athletes, the, the bigger ones, they've made enough money to have, they'll, they'll even tell you, their, grand, their great-grandchildren are set. But how can they take that same wealth they've developed and begin to work back in the communities they come from to build things out. And I think, you know, even some of the guys were learning from Nipsey Hussle, you know, you know, some of the things he was doing before he was murdered. So I think the guys, the guys are doing the work. A lot of them are still learning. A lot of them just don't put the work out there, but they're doing the work. I can definitely vouch that a lot of the guys I've talked to, you know, I know DeMarcus Cousins pretty well, guys like that, they're doing the work. They just don't want to talk about it all the time, but, I guess it's part of my job to make them talk about it so people can know that these brothers are out here doing, as I like to say, they're doing the Lord's work <laughs> to make people who are religious feel more comfortable or they can understand. They're doing something greater than themselves. Yeah, yeah. thanks for that. Thanks for that. Last week was a phenomenal week for me as a sports fan. I witnessed athletes do something that I thought I would never see in my lifetime. The work stoppage initiated by athletes reflected their disgust with police brutality. However, the tweets, press statements, and other actions reflected unity with the African working class. I was totally prepared to not have any more playoffs this season. Then came the intervention from above, and the playoffs were back on. Above all, this underscored the need for true material solidarity between the African middle class and the African working class. In his Sunday study entitled Omali Taught Me, Chairman Omali Eshetela of the African People's Socialist Party noted that what often inspires these gestures of solidarity from the African middle class and the African petty bourgeoisie is the fact that all Africans live under colonialism, regardless of their class position. However, unless the middle class and the petty bourgeoisie fully commits themselves to follow the leadership of the most advanced detachment of the African working class, their actions will always be redirected as we saw this weekend. African athletes have the ability to contribute to the economic development projects in the African community that will build dual and contending power. Nevertheless, I remain extremely, extremely revolutionarily optimistic about what the future holds. Thank you for your time, Jason. This was amazing. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you're a Dodgers fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. And uh, you really knocked it out the park.
<laughs> thank you, thank you. And you didn't cheat like the Houston Astros did. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to the People's War Radio Show. Our guest today is sports journalist Jason Jones. The People's War Radio Show is produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, health care, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Unc, visit developmentforafrica.org. I'd like to thank our guest, Jason Jones, for joining us today. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Colonial virus is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. You gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Down with the colonial.